Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Now, one thing that is not strange but is an annual event that I look forward to immensely is the Irish Film Festival Australia, which recently launched its 2023 program, which is happening in cinemas and online. I'm joined on the phone by Dr Ender Murray, the Festival Director of the Irish Film Festival Australia. Ender, lovely to catch up once again. Good morning, Richard. So in terms of putting together a a festival program, you're appealing in some ways to two different audiences, I would imagine, to to Australian cinephiles who just want to see new international work, but also a core and loyal audience of Irish expats who want to keep in touch with the the culture of their country. Is there ever any tension uh, in terms of navigating those two different demands for the festival? Well, I would say we started off, as, as did a lot of ethnic festivals, we started off with a um, majority of Irish, Irish-born, people with Irish heritage, hibernophiles. Um, and as time has gone on, I think then um, we're, we're starting to grow more in terms of uh, people who respect good cinema because, believe it or not, our cinema has been very successful the last couple of years with, 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 with Banshees of Inishirin, with Colleen Kuhn, and then with, with TV, you know, with, with Bad Sisters, Derry Girls. Uh, you know, there, there, there's some quality material coming out of Ireland, which I think has universal themes. So, yes, um, we, 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 we may have started off with... Uh, a, a, a majority ethnic Irish uh, audience, but um, I think slowly and surely we're um, creeping up to uh, attract the cinephiles. Yeah. Now, uh, certainly, as you say, the the success of Irish cinema, uh, particularly Irish language cinema in recent years, has been remarkable. But the breadth of the festival then also shows us... Uh, contemporary concerns and trends in Ireland, such as, I don't know, the the struggle to stay living in a small town versus the pull to move overseas, the challenges of contemporary masculinity, uh, the fact that Ireland in the the last decade has undergone seismic shifts in terms of women's rights and access to abortion, in terms of same-sex marriage and more. One of the things that I love about the festival every year is that it, it seems to find a way to encapsulate what some of these flashpoints are in contemporary Irish culture by programming key films exploring those issues and themes. Yep, I would totally agree with you. Um, I suppose um, for myself, I've, I've, I've been out of Ireland 30, uh, 38 years. I was, I was 10, 10 years in um in England, I've been 28 years in Australia. I, I grew up and went to uni in Ireland, but Ireland in the 80s was was was, was uh, not a good place uh, for, for both for jobs and and also for you know the, just the, the the social oppression of the of, of the of the Catholic Church. So um, I, I'm, I'm in I'm in some ways I'm trying to make sense of it all myself, um, you know, and that's why I keep going back and, and you know I'm I'm, I'm uh, trying to make sense of why why this little um, rock on the outskirts of Europe has such a, a pull on me, um, and and I'm, I'm keeping going back for the stories. I, I, I think I think we've got a good pedigree when it comes to telling stories. You know, we've always had good writers, and and, and our music has has been um, you know spread far and wide. Uh, so um, it, it, it it doesn't really surprise me um, that uh, we are. Um, able to to make good films and um, we, we, we there are films um being made in ireland about what's happening in ireland and um in, in a way that's what we're uh, lo- looking to do is to, is to um you know give a window on contemporary ireland and, and sometimes uh, you know we're, we're ahead of the pack with with our um same-sex marriage uh, you know we, they, they, it, it, there's been incredible changes in 
um, the, the social um, scene in, in Ireland in, in the last 20 years. So, um, yeah, it's, it's great to get those uh, films which are, which are uh, putting those changes under the microscope. Now, there's a couple of key films I want to come to in a moment, but let's talk about the opening night film for this year's Irish Film Festival Australia, the uh, Australian premiere of Lakelands, which is exploring masculinity, loneliness, and the role of sport in regional communities, which I think is uh, uh, a theme which will resonate really strongly with both Australian-born audiences or uh, expat audiences from any other country living in Ireland, uh, sorry, living in Australia, whether from Ireland or, or elsewhere. Where that notion of sport as a community bond is is really key, and we can see that playing out indeed this weekend with the AFL Grand Final about to happen. But it also reflects that sport can be a, a bond, but it can also be a bit of a trap for men trying to escape uh, a particular definition of masculinity. Talk to us about Lakelands. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought it up. So Lakelands. Um uh, I've been trying to explain this to people like that the, the, the peculiar position of, um, of of Irish rules football GAA in Ireland, and, and one of the things that I come back to is, is AFL in Victoria. That you know, it's it's it's, it's more than a sport. Um, it's it's part of the, um, the, the the DNA of 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 of, of the of the of the area, and. Um, the, the the film deals with a young guy who is a, a, a football uh, star in in his local town, um, but he, he uh, gets an injury and then he uh, needs to deal with you know with what's what's the, the fallout um, from 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 this injury and in 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 a lot of ways he's like an old school man's man and and so does this kind of. Um, focus on on um, you know men's mental health how do you deal with stuff do you keep it all bottled up do you share it um, and, and, and I, I really like that um, the, the, the contemporary story but set against a, a tradition you know which goes back to um, 1884 was this when they codified GAA in Ireland and that was uh, 1868 I believe it codified AFL but you know there's there's that history of of the of the sport in um in in the place and um you you've got this uh, very modern story but um re- respecting the tradition um that 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 it's set within so i i, I was really impressed with these guys um uh, 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 robert um uh, the, the director, his name uh, uh, is amazing at the, at the moment, um, um, and um, the star is uh, Aina Hardwick, uh, who was uh, uh, featured in uh, Normal People, and he's recently just done a, uh, quite a big four-part drama uh, where he's a creepy serial killer, for, uh, which has been really successful as a four-part drama for the... Um, uh, for the BBC uh, called Sixth Commandment. Mm. So Lakelands is the opening night film for this year's Irish Film Festival Australia. It also won Best Irish Feature Film at the Galway Film Fla, and as well as the screening itself, there's going to be a Q&A with the director, Robert Higgins, and uh, the actor as well, So, uh, which I believe you've hosted. Is that a pre-recorded uh, Q&A or is that live? It is uh, pre-recorded. We've got um, nine... Uh, Q and A's with um, the directing and the acting talent, uh, which we've uh, pre-recorded, and they'll screen after the um, the, the features and and also um, uh, online after after the. Um, the features. So, uh, which is a, a good time to mention that, yes, the Irish Film Festival Australia is screening online from October the 5th to the 15th and in cinemas in Melbourne uh, from the 2nd to the 5th of November at Cinema Nova in Carlton. And all. Uh, there's also screenings in cinemas in Sydney, Brisbane, Canberra and Perth for anybody listening to us this morning. Uh, if you are listening to us and streaming on live, uh, online from a different capital city, then uh, the festival may well be in a cinema near you as well. Now, Ender, you mentioned the the 
huge cultural changes in Ireland over recent years with the uh, the, pow- the eroding of the power of the Catholic Church. There's two films in particular that I wanted to highlight that I guess kind of uh, acknowledge and reflect that on that change very deeply and directly. One is a drama, a recreation of a, a tragic death of a, a teenager called Anne Lovett in 1984. The other is a documentary, uh, Pray for Our Sinners, which I understand focuses on events in Drogheda. Both films in their different ways explore the power that the church had and show us how that power has eroded in subsequent years. They both feel like very important films to screen. Yeah, so um, Anne tells the story of Anne Lovett, who uh, was a, a 15-year-old schoolgirl in Granard in uh, County Longford, and in 1984, Anne gave birth on her own uh, in a field um, outside of the, the, the village of, of Granard. Very un- tragically, her, her baby died, and within three hours, Anne had, had passed away herself. And um, I think this was a, 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 a watershed moment in terms of um, women's health and women's control over their bodies. Um, and um, I spoke to Kieran Crow, the director, in, in the Q&A, and, and um, um, it, it was a very difficult film to make. It was an impossible film to get funded, um, and it's, uh, uh, it's a tough film to watch. Um, but uh, he did say he, he, he needed to respect Anne and, and uh, Patrick, her, her baby's memory, and to acknowledge the um, place that she had uh, in terms of the, the changes that happened after that point. Then the second uh, film, you had to mention, Pray for Our Sinners. Um, uh, Sinead O'Shea is the director here. Um, she went back to Narvan, actually just up the road from my hometown, Drada. But um, uh, she went back to Narvan and, and looked at um, a couple of uh, examples of um, situations where... Um, uh, one one um, uh, event was where a, a young woman who had fallen pregnant and was about to have her baby taken away by uh, a mother's and baby's home, um, but um, uh, Sinead O'Shea, the director, she followed a local doctor who uh, went and um, demanded that the, the baby uh, be given back, and it was, um, but um, this again, this, this film looks at uh, the, the social um, environment, um, social cultural environment back in um, the, the, you know the 60s, uh, and the uh, environment that could let those things happen, um, and um, tries to make sense of it for herself and and um, uh, then for for us, the audience, in terms of um, you know how how things were and. Um, contrast with, with how things are today. Now, and uh, it, the films we've talked about so far are dealing with some fairly uh, serious themes. It's important to note, I think, that there are also some comedies in the festival as well. Uh, and I have to say, I'm looking forward to sharing with an audience rather than watching online, which is how I watched it uh, initially, the Oscar-winning and BAFTA-winning short film An Irish Goodbye. Yes, um... We're very um, honoured to get an Irish goodbye for the festival, and um, I think when you see it, you'll understand why it won the Oscar. Um, a, uh, a, a beautiful story of uh, two brothers in, in Northern Ireland, and um, a, they're, they're attempting to uh, fulfil a bucket list of their, their late mum. But... Um, it's it, a very touching film, uh, and, and also, you know, it's got, it's got the, the highs and the lows, um, which I think is, uh, uh, you know, what, what makes uh, the difference between good comedy and great comedy, that the, 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 there is um, a, a light and shade in there. Um, that, 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 that's uh, an Irish goodbye. We've, got, we've also got uh, Joyride with another... Um, Talk about Oscars, another Oscar winner um, in there, um, Olivia Coleman. 
and um, Rosha August Frank, which is a, um, a very offbeat comedy about a, uh, a woman whose husband passes away and she believes that, she, that he has returned to her in the shape of a dog. Um, and it goes downhill after that. Um, but um, it, it's, a, um, it's, in, it's in the Irish language, Rosha August Frank. And um, it's uh, a very charming uh, comedy, and I've also yet yeah, done um, Q and A's with the, with the director and um, and actors there. Uh, it's great. We got a, a shout out Oscarga uh, for for the festival from from the actors there. For more information about the 2023 Irish Film Festival Australia, jump online, www.irishfilmfestival.com.au. The Melbourne season is uh, showing at Cinema Nova in Carlton from the 2nd until the 5th of November. Prior to that, uh, screening in Sydney from the 5th to the 8th of October, Brisbane the 13th to the 15th of October, Canberra the 20th to the 22nd of October, Perth the 27th to the 29th of October, and there is an online program as well, uh, uh, including some films that are not screening in cinemas, uh, which you can access online from the 5th to the 15th of October. Uh, Enda, I just hope that you're not going to be festivaled out by the time you come to Melbourne for the opening night on the 2nd of November. No, it's always good to come down to Melbourne. We get a great opening night with the Melbourne cultists, Mary McBride, and there was even a, a bit of dancing last um, uh, year, and uh, Mary reckons she's going to get that happening again. So it's always a good night. I'm always re refreshed and inspired. I look forward to that. It's the, it's the Irish capital of Australia, you know. But in the, in the 1860s, one third of, of, of Victoria's population was born in Ireland. Um, uh, so, so it's always a good place to come. Well, for an Irishman. Uh, uh the 2nd to the 5th of November are the dates to keep in mind for the Irish Film Festival Australia at Cinema Nova in Carlton and, as I said, irishfilmfestival.com.au. I've been chatting with uh, the festival director, Dr Ender Murray. Ender, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Richard, and uh, big ups to Independent Radio. Woo! Ah, that's right. Triple R. Melbourne Fringe Festival is running from, he says, looking desperately for the dates at the piece of paper in front of him, uh, from the 3rd until the 22nd of October at venues across Melbourne. You can find out more info about the festival at melbournefringe.com.au. But this year, as in previous years, you don't have to leave your home to experience Melbourne Fringe. Melbourne Fringe comes to you. Um, literally, sometimes there have been shows in the past where performers will turn up and perform in your lounge room. But in this instance, uh, I'm joined on the line by Casey Gambling to talk about the work The Hotline, which is an interactive fringe experience you can explore on the telephonic device of your choice. Casey, good morning. Thanks for having me, Richard. Absolute pleasure. Always a delight to talk about Fringe. It's a festival very, very close to my heart, as are abortion rights for women. Um, and this show is kind of fusing those through a satirical commentary on the fact that some helplines for pregnant women are not staffed by people offering useful information about how to terminate an unwanted pregnancy. They may, in fact, be staffed by anti-choice people um, with uh, a deep religious bias. Talk to us about where the, the kernel for this show came from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what you're referring to there is um, when uh, Tony, Tony Abbott was health minister... Boo, uh, yes. he Yes, <laughs> exactly. He set up a pregnancy support health helpline that was staffed by religious anti-choice operators, and that wasn't known uh, to callers. So that is kind of the kernel, the starting point um, for this work. Uh, and I wanted to kind of expand further into the politics of reproductive health. Um, you know, we're not the United States, but I just wanted to look at the ways in which the government kind of controls our bodies that we might not even be aware of, like, for instance, how in 96, Senator Brian Harradine uh, agreed to the sale of Telstra in exchange for uh, the ministerial approval of uh, the medical abortion drug and also in exchange for changes to the family planning 
guidelines which banned foreign aid from working in developing countries and providing training or education about abortion. Um, so that's kind of the political side of the work. Um, but then from a personal perspective, I kind of came at it from my own pre- and postnatal experience of giving birth, even though I had a really good experience. I was hearing mostly negative experiences from other people. And from there, I kind of extended out looking at broader reproductive health care, like I said, looking um, at abortion and how for, in Australia it's a bit of a postcode lottery depending on the kind of care you get. Uh, there can be financial limitations. If you look at people with endometriosis, it can be, you know, seven years to get a diagnosis. And I kind of started expanding out and looking at broader reproductive uh, health as well. And I interviewed people and kind of um, share their experiences. Uh, their personal experiences on the hotline as well. And so the end result of this then is a an interactive but intimate fringe show in which the audience pick up the phone, call a number, and we're all familiar with the, for such and such, press one, for blah, 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 press 18, for uh, to talk to a direct human being, spin around three times and recite the Hail Mary. Um, uh, it's... Uh, that kind of of menu on a phone is something that you're deliberately satirising and also exploring in this work. Yeah, that's exactly right. It kind of effectively is a, a choose-your-own-adventure. You know, you can call multiple times and experience multiple aspects of the work. Um, you know, it's a like you said, it's a real-life hotline, um, regular phone lines that you can call. Um, and... Using that form, I really wanted to kind of explore um, the monotony of when you do have to call these lines, like you said, as everyone is familiar with, um, and the autonomy required to interact with this line, kind of um, mirroring choice or lack of choice that we have in these experiences at times. But it is all entirely pre-recorded, so no, you won't get to talk to a real human being on this one. All entirely pre-recorded. <laughs> Yeah. Now, um, I just made a flippant comment to the, the Hail Mary, and one of the reasons for that is not to disparage people of a deeply held faith. Many of my family members and friends are, are, are people of deep and uh, and significant faith. But it struck me because, partially because I was just talking to somebody from the Irish Film Festival about the way that the Catholic Church used to control women's bodies in Ireland, mm. and also because I've read far too many examples of here in Australia, particularly in regional areas, where the local, the only GP who can assist women with reproductive health health um, is is Catholic and is refusing to prescribe the pill or the morning after pill or uh, other steps. It kind of this is a situation that reinforces uh, that what should be a personal choice for the woman involved is still greatly controlled by. by the patriarchy, let's face it, by kind of conservative men, whether they come from a, a religious position or otherwise. That's exactly right. And like I said, I think because people think that we're not in the United States, that, oh, it's it's easy and accessible and it's just not true. Like you said, it depends on where you live and especially if you live rurally, exactly your point. If there's only one healthcare provider, what are you to do then? Which is why the... Um, medical abortion um, drug like misoprestone um, is really important. And thankfully, there have been um, some changes recently. Even since I started making this work, uh, the TGA has recently made some changes in who can dispense uh, MS2-step, which is that medical abortion drug. So, you know, there are changes happening. It is, it, um, it is for, the, for the best, but we kind of keep, need to keep um, making everyone aware that, people don't entirely uh, have these choices depending on where you are and also financial circumstances. Casey, how do you make an artwork out of this, in particular an artwork that engages and satirises and entertains uh, without 
being perhaps too polemic. There is always a place for polemic in in performance and and art of any kind. But when it becomes too heavy-handed, it it begins to feel like you are being kind of lectured rather than entertained or provoked or engaged. Talk to us about navigating that challenge as you created the hotline for Melbourne Fringe. Uh, I think for me, it's that balance between the satire kind of... um you know, keeping it, you know, it's quite funny in parts. I had a friend um, call it last night and, and tell me how he, you know, was led a bit astray by how light it started out and kind of balancing that with these, like I said, I have these real interviews from people which hopefully elicits uh, empathy to the callers. This isn't me lecturing you. These are real people's experiences and I... I hope that, you know, as opposed to a fictional work where you can think, oh, that's happening over there, you can hear these people's real experiences also mixed in with a little bit of satire to, to keep it light, but know that, hey, these are, these are, they can be heavy topics. But, yeah, I, I think, I hope that it, it does a good job of that. And there's also an option for callers to leave their own thoughts and responses. Yes, that's right. So um, at the end, once you kind of... Um, come to the end of the work there's a chance for you to leave your own message on your own experience and that will be hosted on our website um kind of um i hope at least making people feel like they're not so alone that they can contribute to this work um kind of creating a greater sense of community i hope and that we can um that we all a lot of us share these experiences kind of um, inviting the audience in to the work as well I'm speaking with Casey Gambling about the hotline, which is being presented from the 3rd until the 22nd of October as part of Melbourne Fringe, uh, as part of the Digital Fringe program. It is an on-demand work um, that runs for approximately 15 minutes. You call a phone number, you experience the work as you hold the phone, as you would if you were on hold to Centrelink, except instead of being on hold for two or three hours with Centrelink, you will only be on the phone for about 15 minutes or so. Um, You can find out more info at melbournefringe.com.au. Casey, what made an audio work on a telephone the the perfect medium to explore the themes and ideas that uh, uh, you've uh, put forth in the hotline? Well, I think exactly like you said, it's something that we've all experienced, even if we haven't uh, experienced core reproductive health care. The medium is very familiar to all of us. And I intentionally play with uh, how frustrating that can be. You know, you can press a menu option and not get the menu that you asked for. You can press another menu option and get kind of taken back to the start. So that's um, <clears throat> while I thought this was a perfect kind of medium to play with this idea. As I said, the hotline is being presented as part of Melbourne Fringe from the 3rd until the 22nd of October. Jump online, melbournefringe.com.au to uh, find out the details. It is a free event. Uh, you will only pay for the cost of the phone call, which um, if you're one of those people who only ever texts and never make phone calls, may come as a shock. But uh, hopefully uh, you enjoy the experience nonetheless. The hotline as part of Melbourne Fringe. Casey Gambling, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks so much, Richard. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We were just talking earlier about Melbourne Fringe Festival. It's time to talk about another festival that is on in October, running from the 20th to the 29th of October. The Melbourne International Jazz Festival uh, will be doing its thing at uh, all manner of venues and spaces and places. And joining us to talk through just some of the many program highlights, program director Hadley Agres. Hadley, welcome back to Triple R. Thanks for having me in, Richard. Absolute pleasure. Now, I'm going to start off with a personal question. Why jazz? What is it about jazz as an art form that appeals to you so much that you took on this role? That's a a great question to kick it off. Um, Why jazz? I suppose a two-part answer maybe. Um, There's the art form itself, which is unlike 
any other, really. Um, if you've got a slight interest in music, um, there's a way into jazz. Whether it's the kind of improvisational element or just sort of the energy of the music itself or the kind of dialogue that's inherent in in jazz or the, the kind of onstage conversation and communication that happens that just doesn't um, get a space to exist in such an immediate way in, in other art forms or music forms. You don't even need to speak the same um, verbal language. These people can get on stage together and, and make magic happen in a moment. And there's not much out there that you can say is able to do that or has the luxury to do it. What was your gateway moment, your gateway drug? That was Well, that's the, the second part of it, I suppose. I spent, I spent most of my youth and 20s trying to make it as a musician that didn't work out so well um so I'm on the other side of the desk now but I think I mean you can look back my father I grew up in Newcastle he used to drag me along to these Newcastle Jazz Fest great festival if anyone happens to be listening from New South Wales um and it was in the town hall and he dragged me along every year I've got these wonderful memories of collecting little badges and pins and we'd go and see trad jazz and all the kind of standard stuff you see at um at sort of smaller local festivals I suppose and it, it sort of planted the seed and then I suppose you spend the rest of your youth learning instruments and playing in bands and school stage bands and um, jazz ensembles and the like and then um, I put it away for a few years and tried something that would get me some street cred and that didn't work out either and here I am back in jazz. Yeah. Well I have to say my gateway uh, to jazz was the um, Australian uh, muso John Sangster um, uh, my old man uh, owned John Sangster's Hobbit Suite, Lord of the Rings Suite, kind of jazz from oh. the from the seventies. And because I was such a huge uh, Tolkien nerd when I was uh, <laughs> like like I read the Lord of the Rings nineteen times between the ages of about twelve and eighteen, for example. Um, I was like, I will check out these albums then. So I listened. That was an early jazz introduction, and it, it didn't necessarily take. But then I got. Um, I, like I guess a lot of people do in their 20s, I picked up a copy of On the Road by Jack Kerouac and went, oh, the allure of the beat generation. Hold on, <laughs> bebop jazz. I need to play some bebop jazz while I'm reading this. And then bebop was really the thing that got me into so many different forms of jazz to the point where now, look, I... Kind of, I would. I'm not a jazz aficionado by any means, but the fact that I own some stuff from jazz head recordings of Australian ensembles live at Bennett's Lane, for example, or I've gone back and, and bought some archival uh, CDs of uh, Australian jazz bands from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and so forth. There's something about um, jazz as an endlessly evolving and adaptive art form. Yep. that really strikes a chord. Absolutely, and that's why, like you're saying, you can come back to it at different stages in your life and find another part of it, whether it's bebop in your 20s and then you come back now and who knows where jazz is at the moment. It's, there are so many branches to that tree. So There's where is so jazz much. at the moment? Oh, well, <laughs> I opened because, that door. <laughs> yeah, because uh, that is one of the challenges of the Melbourne International Jazz Festival, I would imagine, to say here is a snapshot of some contemporary trends and styles you can't do can, – can you do justice to the entire world? Well, I mean, you, we, we try our best, really, but I don't think you can. There's only – we only have 10 days and, you know, 30 venues and we can only fit in what we can fit in. Where is jazz? I suppose it's – I mean, I can – there's a – I have a thought about where it is in Australia. I also have a thought about where it is globally and I think what we try and do and Michael, our artistic director, who you know also, we try and spend a lot of time bringing in – um, the greatest work from around the world, whether that's uh, legacy work that's informed where we are now or whether that's people who are on the cusp of taking it in the next um, direction. So find striking that balance right internationally is, is one of the first hurdles that, that we look at and then that in turn ideally inspires audiences and artists here as well. In terms of the Australian work, what excites me most at the moment is... Where we see, as I said before, it's a wonderfully collaborative art form and if Australia and Melbourne in particular is a kind of cultural melting pot of all the um, different influences we've had from around the world, where I think the most exciting Australian work is where we've, you see artists pulling on these influences and drawing it into what started as an American art form and is now becoming very um, interesting and localised and that could be as, you know, whether it's nightclub, dance floor stuff or art, music, jazz at the other end of the spectrum and everything in between. It's where I think Australian 
jazz is at its best when it's really drawing on the influences that make up Australia itself. Now, you mentioned that jazz is an American art form originally and anybody who's seen the Ken Burns documentary um, will have a, a beautiful insight into just the, the history and the richness of jazz. Um, but let's talk about one of the international guests who I'm sure sales uh, are doing well for, Lisa Simone, who is exploring the legacy of her mother, Nina Simone. Now, Nina Simone is an artist I've played on this show, I'm sure, has been played on many other Triple R shows over the years. No but doubt. that idea of a musical heritage being explored by by the daughter um, is a fascinating one because you would imagine that she's going to then bring such rich personal insight and interpretation to those songs. That's absolutely it and I think that's the only w- way to even attempt to do work like Nina Simone. She's such a singular artist and she had such a wide-ranging impact on on music and beyond, really. So having her daughter do that with exactly what you say, with those personal connections and that sort of insight and her own interpretations of them will be truly unique and, and a stunning show. It's nearly sold out, actually. I think there are about 100 tickets left. So um, That's pretty good so for a show in, at Hamer Hall. That's it. So, I mean, really do get in quick if you want that one. Um But if not, there's plenty more. Yeah, well, (laughs) because I guess then talking about the contemporary evolution of jazz, the the UK trio Go Go Penguin... at perhaps a different end of the of the jazz spectrum in some ways, more more playful, more cinematic, perhaps. But absolutely, and that's I mean, it's a great example of, of the breadth of that genre. Um, you've got a sort of iconic legacy piece that we were talking about with the Nina Simone show, and then you've got Go Go Penguin, who are just incredible. And, and Michael and I have been working on getting them out since 2018. Um, they've never been to the country before, and they. Uh, you know, bring almost theatrics, not so much to the performance, but the light show is beautiful. It's, it's a really um, engaging space to be in and you kind of feel, as you say, with this cinematic, improvised approach to music that you're really there in, in the moment with them. Um, they're, they're a beautiful band. They'll be great. Uh, something else that I'm sure will be selling well and uh, will kick off the festival nicely, the opening weekend... Uh, at Sydney Meyer Music Bowl, so you've got, which also demonstrates that um, I'm sure there are some jazz traditionalists going, hold on, but Shaka Khan isn't jazz? <laughs> and Shaka Khan's done a jazz album, um, <laughs> but she's done many, many albums, uh, including dabbling in hip-hop and all kinds of things. Um, so, again, that, that, uh, the versatility uh, and the, the, the fusion of styles and the ability to say kind of... Well, the ability to, in fact, not pinpoint this is jazz and nothing else. And that's what makes it so brilliant, I think. Um, and that's why I, I feel that jazz has had a kind of touch point with so much of music's evolution, regardless of genre, whether that's the impact it's had on, you know, Shaka's soul tunes or her R&B work or her funk tunes. Um, similarly with Nile Rodgers and Sheik who are on that pages. There's a lot of disco in Chic, but that's all got a touch point in jazz and you can really see how that's crafted these new genres as they've evolved over the years. Let's talk about some of the Australian headliners. Can any particular... Are you allowed to have favourites? <laughs> Possibly. I'm sure I... I suppose so. Um, let's let's say it's yes. Always, yeah, <laughs> it's something that I, I'm really conscious of when I interview a festival director because I know festival directors, for example, they hate the question but they always end up being asked, as, kind of like, who are your top five recommendations? And the honest response is generally the entire program. But the, the canny approach is here are the ones I really need to sell tickets to. <laughs> um, but then also the idea of having a favourite is it's like talking to a parent. Parents aren't allowed to say that such and such a child is their favourite. They may know that to be the truth, but they can't necessarily say it. So I'm conscious of asking that of, uh, of uh, my current guest, Program and Director Hadley Agrees <laughs> about the Melbourne International Jazz Festival. Do you have favourites in the program from the local artists? Do you know, I probably don't, but that's, <laughs> but that's only because the styles are so wildly divergent. It's like, um, you know, do I prefer... Asian cuisine or French this week, and it just depends on what I'm up for that day. Um, both are delicious. So I think, and, and that's one of the things that we're so excited about about the program this year is there's a real spread of, of genre and style and, and, and art, really. So, I mean, from the Australian program, from the Vanessa Perica Orchestra will be incredible. She's um, 
I mean, not a rising star. She's a genuine star now of the kind of uh, through composed. Uh, large ensemble jazz scene here. She's going to be a prolific, um, incredible composer and performer here in, in Australia and beyond for many years to come. So that's at the Melbourne Recital Centre and, and it's it's an 18-piece orchestra she's working with and it's the very best from around the entire country. Um, and she'll only work with particular musicians. So we're, they're coming in from South Australia and WA and Sydney and, and of course, Melbourne to to form that ensemble. That'll be great. But at the other end of the scale, another favourite would be... on. on conveniently on the same night, um, is a triple bill we've got with Tay Mori and a band called Supernatural Dirt, which is led by Barney McCall, um, and a young drummer from South Australia, Alexander Flood. And that's really at the kind of groove-based, almost psychedelic, improvised dance floor jazz. So on that one night, you can see two of my personal favourites. Now, one of the important things for a festival is ensuring that it provides multiple entry points for different audiences. Uh, That includes families and kids, which the festival is doing this year at Chapel Off Chapel. We sure are. Um, Festival favourites, actually. We've we've had them before. I believe they were out in 2018, which was right when my kids were a perfect age for this band. That is La La's Jazzy Playground. Um, I... I don't know if they're still on ABC Kids, but certainly when my children were of an ABC Kids age, they were all over it and they wear wonderful striped clothing and it's actually one of the great jazz children's works of which there aren't enough. Um, These guys really understand how to engage children. We're talking about sort of toddlers and and early school school age kids. Um, They really bring that audience along a little an easily consumed journey of this is what a a double bass sounds like and this is what improvisation is and this is how we put parts together and it's really well done. They've been doing it for years and they're brilliant. So kind of like a jazz version of Peter and the Wolf, which is the orchestral introduction. Right? Yep, not dissimilar at all. Yeah. But with a lot, probably a lot more laughter. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Hadley Agres, the Program Director of the Melbourne International Jazz Festival, about this year's festival program. Uh, Melbourne International Jazz Festival runs from the 20th to the 29th of October. You can find out full program details and book because shows are selling out, as Hadley has already mentioned, uh, by going to www.melbournejazz.com. Now, Hadley... There's many different roles that a festival plays and we've talked about a few of those. We've talked about kind of winning over young audiences and providing different perspectives on an art form from historical through to contemporary and more. What about the development role that a festival plays? Yeah, well, it's certainly a space we've been moving more and more into over the last five or six years. Um, I think it's incumbent on any sort of major arts organisation or people who have an opportunity to do this um, kind of work and, and present great shows to work and embrace the local sector in whatever ways we can. And so we've been doing that through, well, two artist development year-round streams or initiatives at the moment. We have one that's been running for five years now, which is incredible, and it actually continues to go from strength to strength. So that's a... It's called Take Note. It's a gender equity um, and artist development program. We've got a wonderful saxophonist, Cheryl Jones Pitical, um, working as the leader of that program this year. And she'll be um, premiering a commission uh, as part of that program on our opening night at the Jazz Lab. Um, a 12-piece ensemble, it'll be, it'll be stunning. And she's also been going into high schools throughout Victoria and, and regional and metro, really working on role modelling and... Um, working with high school age kids to see if they are interested in staying in a music career and a, and a jazz career potentially. Um, another one is is a First Nations um, artist residency program that we're <clears throat> excuse me doing in partnership with the Australian Art Orchestra, which is running for three years now. Um, partly motivated, motivated by the importance that both of our organisations feel that um, First Nations voices are central to what this conversation about what Australian jazz is. Um, and so finding, creating more pathways and initiatives to really engage with that and ask that question and start that discussion has been um, really brilliant. It's been an exciting kind of journey to be on. Now, you mentioned Jazz Lab. Let's wrap up by talking about the Club Sessions program because I think for a lot of people, when they think of jazz, they think of small, dark smoky clubs. Now, smoking bands mean that clubs are no longer smoky, <laughs> but small, dark, but intimate in particular. And it's one of the best things about our festival, honestly. That's why we, we run it 
uh, up at the Jazz Lab in Brunswick. We run it ten nights of the festival every night, two shows a night, and then late night jams afterwards, which are their own wonderful beast. Um, yeah, it's exactly that. We we couldn't have everything in concert halls, beautiful as they are. Um, when you can sit, um, you know, one and a half metres from an artist who has shaped a genre and see the beads of sweat on the brow and and really feel like you're on top of the piano or whatever it is. It's, there are a few environments where you get that immediacy and that intimacy that you're talking about. It's It's... I mean, I recommend to everyone, get along and see at least one show in the Jazz Lab this year. And come to the jams afterwards. They're good fun. You never know who's on stage. For more information about the Melbourne International Jazz Festival, which runs from the 20th to the 29th of October, www.melbournejazz.com. Tickets are available for the full program now uh, and there is a hell of a lot to see. I've been chatting with the program director, Hadley Agres. Hadley, thanks for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you, Rich. Triple R. I'm joined in the studio by my next guest, Anne-Louise Sarks, is an accomplished theatre director and the artistic director of the Melbourne Theatre Company. Anne-Louise, lovely to have you back with us. It's so good to be here. Hello. Now, you just recently launched uh, on the 13th of September the MTC's 2024 season, which must be slightly discombobulating to go, but we haven't even finished this year and we're now talking about next year and probably kind of scheduling shows for the next couple of years after that as well, I'm sure. But what I wanted to ask to begin with was every artistic director brings something of themselves to a program. What have you brought to the 2024 season at MTC? That's such a beautiful question to start with. Thank you for asking me that. No one's ever asked me that before. I I brought, I think, a, a deep love of theatre and a belief in what theatre can do that no other art form can do. I love being in a room, being told a story, being carried away, surrounded by the sort of responses and uh, sometimes frustrations or the excitement of of other audience members. So I think that's what really makes my season a little bit different. What can theatre do that other art forms can't? I think it's connection. I I, I think it's connection to story, a a kind of deeper connection to human beings, be it in the audience or to those characters on stage, to to what they're experiencing. I, I think it asks you to sort of sit forward and bring something of yourself Well, certainly I've read studies in the US that suggest that in theatre, audiences' hearts synchronise. Our hearts literally beat as one as we lean into the moment. That's what I was going to say, actually. That was what I was going to tell you next. And I think, isn't that incredible? Like, proof, scientific proof that you are more connected to your fellow humans when you're sitting in a space like that. I love that. Yeah, and also the fact that theatre is an empathy machine. Right. It it allows you to identify with people from a very different life than than the one you have lived, to feel their hopes, their joys, their pains. And I think that makes us better people as a result. Same. I I mean, uh, Anne Bogart, um, an American theatre maker, talks about theatre as a gymnasium for the soul. You know, somewhere where you go and you, you wrestle with things that you're experiencing or perhaps things you've never even imagined you might experience. Experience. And I think, for me, that's entertainment, you know. That's the best possible entertainment, to leave sort of with a new sense of yourself or the world that, that we all are a part of. Now, speaking of entertainment, let's talk about uh, the opening work in season 2024 from the MTC by the lovely Matthew Whittett, 17. Now, this is a play in which... Older actors, more senior actors, are playing teenagers, which in itself will be delightful to watch, but will remind all of us about what it was to be a teenager. I think that's so true. Everyone can connect to this play, you know, whether you want to remember those teenage years or not. It's a a really playful, bright, sort of optimistic piece. Uh, Those beautiful veterans of the stage... uh, transform into their teenage selves. It's messy, they're drinking in the park, they're kissing each other and fighting and dancing and um, it's just so fun. And I think this is a work that really speaks to 
all ages, which I love as an opening to the year. You know, bring bring the teenager in your life. Um, I think, yeah, it's it's quite celebratory. Which is a nice way to kick off a new year yeah. rather than beginning with something kind of grim and dark. That's right. But, you know, one of the things that's really struck me in 2023 is that audiences are hungry for challenging, thought-provoking work. You know, Prima Facie was really proof of that for us. Like, you know, you couldn't get a ticket to that show. Uh, and that's a piece that discussed, uh, you know, the the way that our judicial system manages sort of sexual assault cases. It's a, on paper, you wouldn't imagine that was going to be a runaway hit, but it was an exceptional piece of storytelling. And Sheridan Harbridge, who um, performed uh, in the Australian production, was like, she was just electric in that role. And she's actually back doing Meet Me at Dawn with us next year, which is our second show of the year. It's a play in the Fairfax, um, a beautiful piece of poetic writing by Zinni Harris, a British playwright who who doesn't get a lot of um, airtime here in Australia or hasn't previously, but is next year. Um, and this is a piece about two women who, who are in love based on the Orpheus and Eurydice myth and who um, find themselves torn apart. It's a, it's a bit of a sort of mystery. It has a bit of a thriller. Um, it's very funny and very moving. Now, one of the works that I'm really... I mean, there are many works in next year's season I'm really intrigued to see, but uh, one that immediately leapt out at me is, I guess, for two reasons. One, it's written by the Palawa playwright Nathan Maynard, whose work I've been watching with interest as he kind of... from um, the, 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 the early play he wrote about mutton birding the season to kind of uh, so many more like really rich and interesting and engaged works um, uh, so there's that but also it's looking at the story of Adam Goods uh, the the footballer who was who's again whose refusal to play the role of what white Australia wants black people to be um, he he didn't play that role he, he he broke boundaries he was aggressive in a way that shocked people and resulted in a racist campaign of booing yeah. uh, which is one of the most shameful periods in Australian AFL history. And I really believe that theatre, you know, back to what we started with, theatre is a place where we can have these conversations, we can take part in these conversations. So 37 by Nathan Maynard is um, inspired by that moment where Adam Goods did that war cry dance on the field in response to that booing crowd. Uh, it's set in a sort of local country football team, desperate to win a trophy. They bring in two cousins called the Mangrook Cousins and Mangrook is the Aboriginal game that evolved into AFL as we know it. And um, the tensions inside the team as they watch that that moment where Adam Goods did that sort of extraordinary uh, dance, um, they they erupt and this delightful ensemble comedy takes a bit of a kind of dramatic twist as they try to make sense of who they are and, and what they're all working towards and, and how to be a team together. And I love the fact that it's a comedy as well. Right. Obviously a, a comedy with some dark notes because comedy uh, makes tough topics palatable in a way that serious drama sometimes can't. Absolutely. It lets you in, doesn't it? And Nathan's really clever like that. It's also, it's going to be really beautiful, I think. You know, 10 actors on the Sumner stage capturing the sort of passion and the sweatiness and the challenge of football, I think, is um, it's very exciting to me. I think it'll be a bit sexy too, actually. Now, I want to segue for a moment to talk about the role that the Melbourne Theatre Company has in the kind of the Victorian theatre landscape. You are the the state theatre company in a way. You're not yeah. the Victorian theatre company, though. You're the Melbourne Theatre Company. Yeah. Talk to us nonetheless about the the... I guess the responsibility MTC has to ensure that it is attracting audiences from outside of Melbourne, that it is uh, ensuring that school kids in regional areas can either access theatre afford uh, affordably or see it digitally, for example. Yeah. Well, it's really important to me that... that theatre is for everyone, actually, that that there is an open invitation and that we are making sure that our work is reaching audiences, as you say, of, of all ages. Uh, we take our work on tour. We take our education play, uh, World Problems, um, by Emma Mary Hall is our education play this year and that'll go on tour around regional Victoria. But we also ha uh, have a digital theatre offering, um, ways for audience members to see our work if they can't get into the building, uh, a whole lot of 
access programs. Um, we've introduced relaxed performances, um, ticketing initiatives to help people kind of come along and see the work, black ticks for all our shows for First Nations audiences. Um, you know, there's a, I'm, I'm just so determined to open up this company to make sure that it reflects contemporary Australia and to excite people about what theatre can do uh, and, and about these stories. You know, most of the plays next year are Australian plays, um, seven plays in the season, stories about us and about who we want to be. And certainly your predecessor, Brett Shee, mentioned several times on this show that the best sellers, the most well-attended uh, plays year after year were Australian stories, new Australian plays, contemporary writing about who we are, our relationship to one another, our relationship to this country. Yeah, I think that's just so, so important to me. And and the way 23, my, my first season as artistic director has been going, is just proof of that. You know, Sunday broke the record uh, for a new Australian work uh, for the Melbourne Theatre Company. The, the hunger the audience has had for that story, a very sort of local story, and Bloom, our new musical about aged care, uh, written by Tom Gleisner, um, that broke sun the record that Sunday broke. So there is a real hunger for stories about us. Now, I'm glad you mentioned Sunday because I wanted to pick up on that. It's not part of, uh, it's not getting a return season in 2024, but it has been picked up. It's a, It's been bought uh, by the Sydney Theatre Company. That's now, right. Now, am I right in thinking this is the first MTC production that's been a buy-in for a for a, an interstate company for at least a significant period of time, at least a decade or more? I, yeah, I think that's true, Richard, but I don't know the exact number as you're asking, like, the dates mm. of that. But but it, it is... We've done co-productions where we're both committed yeah. to the work, like Is God Is this year, that incredible Alicia Harris show. But, yeah, this is the first time one of our Australian works is travelling. Uh, Sydney Theatre Company and Melbourne Theatre Company, both of us are really committed to to giving longer life to Australian work. It's, it's not just enough for it to be seen once. I really want it to be seen by as many audiences as possible all over the country, but also to entrench these works in the Australian canon. And that, that's part of what's motivating us to bring Julia. I was about to mention Julia, the play, uh, the STC play about yeah. Julia Gillard. So this is a buy-in from the MTC from the STC. So a nice reciprocal relationship there. And again, a play that got remarkable feedback, uh, both at uh, the STC run, but also it was at the Canberra, Canberra Theatre Centre. Centre. Absolutely. Yeah, people were uh, really clambering for standing room tickets, which is so exciting to know that there's that hunger there. Um, I went to see it in Sydney and I was really blown away. Justine Clark does this sort of incredible, very gradual, subtle transformation into Julia Gillard on stage. Um, it, it culminates in the misogyny speech, but it's very much a piece of theatre, not just about Julia Gillard, about, about us, about this country and our recent history and, and how far we've come and uh, it asks how much further we have to go and I, uh, I, I was really profoundly affected and so was the woman sitting next to me. She'd driven from Canberra because she couldn't get a ticket there and we just sat in the theatre as everyone left and, and um, we were sort of a little bit stunned, I think. It's, it's a powerful show. I'm looking forward to seeing it because I think the last thing I saw Justine Clark in, I could be wrong, but certainly the, the most memorable thing I saw her in the last few years was State Theatre Company South Australia's production of Girls and Boys, yeah. which she was jaw-dropping in. Yeah, so. she's an exceptional theatre maker, a, a really, really um, very talented, very rigorous actor. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, Bloom, the musical that did well this year. You've got another musical next year to close the season out, uh, a musical adaptation of My Brilliant Career, uh, of course, uh, Dean Bryan and Matthew Frank are involved. Yeah. They seem to have their hands in so many, kind of, like, we need someone to direct a new musical. Simon Phillips or hmm, Bryant and Frank. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, I yeah. know. And Sheridan Harbridge is involved as well. Sheridan is working on the adaptation and bringing all of her sort of chaotic, messy energy and channeling that into Sibylla Melvin. So um, it's a, yeah, musical adaptation of that iconic Australian novel, My Brilliant Career, written by Miles Franklin. I, uh, I'm i the lucky fool who gets to direct it, uh, this one. And um, it is, yeah, 
it's really exciting to me too that the company is is making new Australian musicals. You know, we talk about those as sort of unicorns. It, it's a it's a crazy venture in a way. The all of those elements coming together, sort of even more than theatre. You know, the the sort of music, the design, the stagecraft, the movement. It's um it's a it's going to be a bit of a beast. Um, this is a piece about a young woman for people who don't know, uh, Sibylla Melvin, who is coming of age and uh, does not want to get married, um, has ambitions to be a writer, is stuck in sort of rural Australia, um, but is very, very determined. And the music will put us right inside her kind of emotional chaos, inside her mind as she tells this story. Um, Carla Gare, who was one of the um, incredible women in Six, uh, is is Sibylla for us. And um, I just think it's going to, like, blow the roof off. Um, really happy to be leading this kind of century-old story that's been injected with, like, very contemporary feminist thought. Now, one of the other things that I know you're committed to is ensuring that uh, stages of the MTC reflect the broader population. And uh, it's something that the Australian theatre sector has been grappling with for years and is definitely getting much, much better at. There's still a way to go. But um, so this year, for example, Merlin Tong's Golden Blood, uh, I think, uh, is significant to mention. Um, The production of English by uh, Senoz Tutsi. Senoz Tutsi, yeah. And... And uh, Susan Laurie Park's Top Dog, Underdog, which uh, Bert Labonte is directing, making his directorial debut at the MTC. Yeah, so excited about that play. Top Dog, Underdog is like a a classic American piece uh, written by Susan Laurie Parks in 2001, won the Pulitzer. Um, It's the play actually that playwrights use to teach other playwrights how to write it's um the the craft of it is exceptional um and I think Bert you know has such a kind of deep understanding of building a character um this is in the Lawler for us uh, a really intimate setting um you get inside the apartment with these brothers it's a little bit vaudevillian comedy a little bit Greek uh drama um you know, rivalry between these two men. It's, uh, you do not want to miss this play. It's, um, I can't believe it's never been seen in, in Australia before. Which must be one of the great joys of being the artistic director of a company going, oh my God, we can, we can give this at Australian premiere. We can do this. Yeah. And, and we can, we can bring this uh, to life for audiences. It's best job in the world. Can't believe my luck. <laughs> also, the other thing that we should acknowledge too, is the MTC's role in commissioning and developing work as well. Yeah. So we we do uh, we run a program called Next Stage and we uh, commission and develop new Australian works. So Thirty Seven's part of that, and My Brilliant Career uh, Sunday, of course, is part of that. Um, Merlin Tong actually wrote Golden Blood. Uh, as part of that um, program, she was a resident writer with us, but of course that production's coming from Griffin uh, in Sydney, where they're also doing amazing things, developing new Australian work. Shout out to Declan Green. <sighs> Absolutely, so much respect for Declan. Um, so yeah, it's really it's really important to me not just to be commissioning writers to tell our stories, but to be presenting them, to be to be jamming our season with those new works and taking those risks and making sure that that the artists of the future are having their sort of um, first opportunities with Melbourne Theatre Company. For more information about the Melbourne Theatre Company's 2024 season, jump online, www.mtc.com.au. Subscriptions for the 2024 season are on sale now uh, and then individual tickets for, for shows will go on sale at different times in the coming months. That's right. So keep your eye on the program if you want to just buy an individual ticket or two. Uh, If you want to subscribe, mtc.com.au. Tickets available now. And just before I let Anne-Louise Sarks, the Artistic Director of the MTC, go, you've got a brand new show opening tonight written by the inimitable Patricia Cornelius, who to my mind is the great Australian playwright of her generation. That's what I was going to say. Isn't she just? She is exceptional. Uh, We have the premiere of My Sister Jill, which is based on Patricia's novel, a 
little bit based on Patricia's own sort of family history, uh, a story, a coming-of-age story really of five siblings and of, of a man who has um, is suffering with the sort of trauma of the Korean War. Uh, it's a really um, playful, very smart, uh, at times quite dark piece about a family and particularly about a young woman who's, who's trying to sort of make her way in the world. It's directed by Susie D. Patricia and Susie have been partners for decades, I want to yeah, say. Yeah, I think nearly like they acted five. together at La Mama over right. 40 years ago in right. their, in kind of a very, very early work and then very quickly kind of went, Susie was like, actually, I won't act, I'll direct your work. And the way they are in tune with each other, the, yeah. the skill they bring to interpreting uh, one another's work it's remarkable. It is so overdue that we are seeing a partnership like that, like there is, on Melbourne Theatre Company stages. I'm really proud of the show. I uh, I can't speak of it highly enough. You've got to get along and see it. I look forward to seeing it. That's my sister Jill opening officially tonight at the MTC. Uh, part of the 2023 season, more shows to come. Stay tuned in the coming months. I'm sure we'll talk about those, either myself or the Breakfasters or someone else here at Triple R. And do check out check out the 2024 program, uh, mtc.com.au. And Louise Sarks, it's been a delight. Thank I you. really loved it. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews, and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 